and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Zach. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, you know. Settling in to the new place, okay? We're getting there. It's, uh, what did uh, Amanda's grandfather said, uh, there's a... There's a place for everything, but not everything is in its place yet. So, <laughs> wise words. <laughs> That's how it goes, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. How are you doing? Uh, I, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I was wondering if you've uh, stocked your bar yet in your new place. <laughs> it is not quite done yet. Uh, we're slowly. Some things are on uh, wait long back order. Um, mm-hmm. We had to leave some things behind at the new the uh, the old place. So, kind of yeah. as far as what's on tap, I feel like. Uh, <laughs> yes. We're working. That is where I was going. What, what what are you drinking? I've got a a beer that was uh, left over from the move. Um, <laughs> I feel like even in these times, beer and pizza after a move is still what tastes best. So I'm drinking a, a Founders All Day IPA, which is readily available at my grocery store. So nice. That's what I got. How about you? Uh, I also have a pretty depleted bar. My parents are not big drinkers. My dad pretty much only drinks Chardonnay and Michelob Ultra. So. Uh, having one of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've managed to raise a, a stellar drinker. Despite. And who are we talking to this week, Zach? We are speaking with Father Michael Trail, who's an associate pastor at Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Father Michael's part of the Archdiocesan Task Force of priests who are specially trained and selected to administer the sacrament of the anointing of the sick to those who are dying from COVID-19. Yeah, and I was excited to talk to Father Michael because I think one of the, I mean, most tragic parts of this crisis has been hearing about um, families who are not able to be at the bedside of their loved ones when they're sick and when they're dying. And so I'm really interested to hear the perspective of someone who's, who's able to be in the room in those last moments and how he's ministering to the sick and also also to their families. Um, so stick around for that conversation. But first, we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, our first story concerns a conference call between Catholic leaders and educators on Saturday with President Trump. So this was a call with over 600 people um, in which, uh, you know, bishops and Catholic educators, including Cardinal Dolan of New York, Cardinal Sean O'Malley of Boston, um, LA's Archbishop Jose Gomez, the president of the Bishops' Conference, talked with President Trump and the uh, Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, about the challenges facing Catholic schools at this moment. Yes, and reports about this call first came out uh, in crux, and there is a big conversation around it uh, because President Trump reportedly steered the conversation in uh, a different direction, even if that was the purpose of the call, um, where he called himself uh, the best president in the history of the church um, and uh, emph- repeatedly emphasized his support of uh, the pro-life movement and what he said were the high stakes of the 2020 presidential election when it comes to religious liberty and abortion. Right. So the purpose of the call was to talk about education and like schools across the country and like nonprofits across the country, Catholic schools have been, have taken a terrible financial hit because of the crisis. Um, 
because of the uh, financial rescue package that Congress passed and the president signed, they were able to be a part of the um, the uh, pay- payroll protection act, um, which is something the the bishops thanked uh, President Trump for. Um, but they also said that their problems are not going to end this spring. That next fall there is going to be um, a crisis for. For families who um, maybe one of the parents is no longer working and can't afford tuition, so they asked for tuition assistance. Um, but like you said, <laughs> the president, as he often does, steered this in the direction of more of a, a campaign rally, uh, touting touting his record and you know just pointing to the high stakes of the 2020 presidential elections for Catholics and and really you know trying seeming to set up a us versus them battle between the church and the Democratic Party. Um, well, that was certainly noted in the sort of in the discourse that came out after this call. Right. Right. Which I think is sort of that's probably the main tragedy of this is that the issue of Catholic schools is often getting it, it is definitely, I think, lost, at least in the understanding of the American Catholic public out of this. I'm wondering what else you thought about this. Right. And and it's understandable that, you know, Catholics would look at this, um, look at this call and, you know, the kind words that some of the bishops had for Trump and the um, often hyperbolic way that Trump usually talks about his own record and, you know, kind of be turned off by the bishops, um, I don't know, getting their hands dirty in this way or associating with a president who, on a lot of other issues that Catholic care about, um, like immigration, does not have a great <laughs> record, to say the least. Um, so I'm wondering what you think about that. What, was it a good move for the bishops to to have this call and try to, um, you know, get support for Catholic education, even if it meant associating with uh, the president? Well, the first thing I would say, and it, I don't know, maybe it feels obvious to say this, but it still needs to be said, it is extremely inappropriate and wrong for president trump to use this crisis this call this ask for assistance and turn it into uh a campaign push for him right like up front that is wrong and immoral especially in the current climate secondly i i don't know that i can say you know bishops trying to get involved in politics it might be the only way they can get assistance for some of these schools so I don't feel as qualified to like judge the means in which they do that. I think I, for one, was really uncomfortable with a lot of the the quotes that came out of the call. Um, but the thing that that certainly raised the most questions with me is w- when on Monday morning, Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York uh, went on Fox and Friends on Fox News and really kind of doubled down on praising President Trump and his record on some of the things that he brought up in the call. Yeah. No, I think that um so the, the the original call was supposed to be private and the transcript was leaked. And we should say that uh as of recording this on April 28th, uh the transcript has not been released in full, so we are we are basing our comments based on what's been reported by various news sites. Um so whatever quotes were said there may or may not have been for wide <laughs> consumption, but going on Fox and Friends certainly is a is a um you know, conscious decision to um, reach that audience um, and potentially um, 
alienate people who um, are less sympathetic to uh, the president and maybe may question the bishop's involvement in politics in this way. I guess I I am pretty sympathetic to, you know, bishops using the um, the moral authority and connections they have to support Catholic schools. I do think that's in a really important cause. But yes, I do I do worry about um, the effects of this in terms of their credibility with certain parts of the of the country. Yeah. And I it, it just frustrating is not the word, but maddening that <laughs> you have to just placate and praise and um sort of cozy up to the leader of the United States in order to get basic aid and necessities that people are really suffering from. And that I think is a point that keeps getting lost and that should be the focus right now. Yeah, for sure. Well, if you want to hear more uh, about Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York and and how he's responding to the coronavirus pandemic uh, and how he's trying to support Catholic schools through this, the editor-in-chief of American Media, Father Matt Malone, will be doing a Facebook Live session with him uh, this Friday. So if you're listening to this uh, on Friday morning, you can catch that live and otherwise it will be on America's Facebook page. So you can check that out. What's our next story, Zach? So a new survey is out, and this is an annual survey that's done on seminarians who are scheduled for priestly ordination this year. It's conducted annually by the Center for the Applied Research in the Apostolate at Georgetown University, which does a lot of uh, survey and data analysis on trends in the United States. And this new class of ordinands uh, is sort of confirming some things we we knew where the priesthood was going in the U.S., um, but it also is revealing a little bit of some of the gaps in our seminary formation. Right. And some of the most interesting uh, tidbits to come out of it had to do with the uh, race and ethnicity of ordinance. So about 25% are foreign-born, and this reflects almost perfectly the proportion of foreign-born Catholics in the United States. Um, One thing that was interesting about that is uh, of those foreign-born priests, most of them had been in the country for over 10 years. Uh, So these aren't people who are you know, coming to the U.S. to become priests, but, you know, it's something that comes later in life. Yeah. And despite that, still almost two-thirds of the ordination class of 2020 are white men of European ancestry. And that is not reflective of the demographics of the church in the United States, which is a problem. Right. It specifically is, it doesn't represent the the number of Latinos that are in the U.S. church now, right? That's right. I mean, that's especially going to be a problem given that the church under 18 is already majority Latino in the United States. And so as more and more Catholics don't see priests that, you know, reflect their identity and their cultural experience, you can only imagine the disconnect that's going to come out of that. Right. So the study also asked uh, ordinance when they considered uh, entering the priesthood. And I was surprised to learn that the most common response was actually elementary school. Yeah, I I'm always surprised when I hear things like that because the things I was thinking about in elementary school were, you know, mostly centered around like Pokemon cards. Yeah. No, I actually did. The first job when my, when my parents asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up was a nun, but that was only because we had like a Catholic university down the road. And I thought if I became a nun, I could like live next to them forever. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was more of a, a phase. But but for, you know, it, apparently for a lot of people, the, the, the call to that vocation comes pretty early on. Yeah. Uh, 
and it's a reflective of other research we've seen that shows that you know young people are making big decisions about god at that time in their lives you, you look at when young people decide to disaffiliate from religion it's that's also right around when people are sort of asking those questions for the first time so the kids are uh even if I wasn't, are thinking deeper things than we we give them credit for, I think. I also thought it was interesting that uh, there's still a good amount of seminarians who go in with a lot of educational debt. Um, 28% uh, had some form of student loan debt, um, and that averaged uh, nearly $30,000. And so what kind of barrier is that putting on, mm. you, you know, you think about the people who can't join because their debt is maybe too high, or they're sort of discouraged from going to get a philosophy and theology degree that, you know, may not pay that back in a in a timely manner. Yeah, and that points to some of the structural challenges there are around the education of seminarians, both in the United States and around the world. Yeah. And also, Cardinal Mark Willette gave an interview to the Vatican's Women's Magazine, uh, where he said that seminaries definitely need to hire and involve more women. Um, and that for some priests and seminarians, quote, women represent a danger. But in reality, the true danger are those men who do not have a balanced relationship with women. And I thought that was good of Willette to say. <laughs> yes, uh, because it's a it's a serious problem if women are absent from the formation of our priests. And I, that feels like an obvious thing to say, but it is yeah. a sad case that they they are not only underrepresented. Sometimes they're total like almost totally absent from seminary grounds and, and classes and things like that. I would certainly second Cardinal Willette's um, recommendation. Uh, you know, I certainly think I have a civilizing effect on the on my male colleagues at American oh Media, and I can only imagine what what having more women uh, in the roles of professors and counselors uh, in the seminary would do. Um, and when uh, Cardinal Willette was asked during the interview if he thought that having women more involved might have, if not maybe not stopped the abuse crisis, but could have, you know, tempered some of the abuse of of women and children and of conscience that has plagued the church um, and that has come to light so, so much in recent years. Yeah, agreed. What's our next story? So last week we introduced a recurring segment in which we focus on a, a population that is maybe particularly vulnerable or overlooked during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, And this week, we wanted to focus on people who are experiencing homelessness, which in the United States is half a million people who literally cannot um, follow the directive to stay at home. Right. And the coronavirus pandemic is sort of exacerbating a lot of the challenges that the homeless population normally faces. Things like lack of shelter, uh, food scarcity, uh, medical assistance. These are all sort of made a lot worse during the stay-at-home lockdown order. Right. You know, if you if you um, lose your job and can't pay your rent, you might you might have to live in a shelter. Um, you know, people who generally rely on the generosity of pedestrians are no longer being able to ask for um, food or money on the streets if there's no one commuting. Um, food banks uh, are stretched thin as more people require those services. Uh, people who might rely on emergency rooms for medical care because they don't have health insurance um, are probably not going to be able to do that uh, if those emergency rooms are packed with people with coronavirus. So it's a really it's uh, it's a crisis on on top of a pre-existing crisis that we were facing in our country. Right. And just basic things like 
you know, we're all being told to wash our hands more. We don't, we don't have public hand washing stations in the United States, like anywhere. And so even just basic hygiene is like to stop the spread of germs is made all the more difficult now. Yeah. And on top of that, if, if you're in a shelter, especially, um, you know, in, in New York, at least I know there are a lot of people living in, in group shelters, single people who, you know, you don't have your own private room. So you're in beds that, you know, if you're lying down, you can hold hands with the person next to you. So the idea that you're going to be able to social distance in that situation is just, it's just not possible. Cities have started putting people in, in hotel rooms, which, which sit empty during this crisis. On top of that, uh, the, the rescue package that went through Congress did include four $4 billion for homeless services. Um, but it's clear this, you know, this was a under-resourced, um, under-resourced crisis to begin with. Um, and, and I think it's clear that, you know, during and after this pandemic, uh, the, our cities are going to have to step up their response to homelessness. Right. And so what can everyday normal Catholics do who are sitting at home as we're paying attention to the country's recovery from this pandemic. One thing, it's important to remember that Catholic Charities, um, both the the national and the local chapters are continuing to advocate for and serve the homeless. Yeah. And local food banks are, they're, like I said before, they're stretched thin right now um, in terms of, you know, donations, just because there is such an increase in demand, but also a lot of their um, volunteers uh, are, are part of you know, they're often older retirees, and so they aren't able to volunteer anymore. They're they're considered a vulnerable population themselves. So if you are young and healthy and do not live with um, someone who would be vulnerable to COVID-19, I, you know, you could maybe consider volunteering. I know that our, our local area food banks in Washington, D.C., um, they need the help. Right. And if you haven't been severely economically impacted by the pandemic, you consider donating some of your resources to some of the local uh, Catholic charities and other nonprofits that are serving this population. And also know that the National Alliance to End Homelessness is providing fact sheets and resources with other tips on how to help this. There are a lot of people who are already paying attention to this problem who are going to know best how to uh, address it. Joining us from Chicago is Father Michael Trail. He's an associate pastor at Our Lady of Mount Carmel in Chicago, and he's a member of the Archdiocese Task Force of Priest Anointers Caring for Those Suffering from COVID-19. Welcome to Jesuitical, Father Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I imagine it's a, a busy and challenging time. Um, I'm wondering if you can take us back uh, to that moment when the Archdiocese um, announced that it was going to create this task force for people to do the anointing of of the sick. Um, did you immediately jump at the opportunity? What did your um, decision-making process look like? Well, I mean, on a personal level, you know, I, I immediately say yes, because like, this is what I sign up for as a priest, right? You know, my job as a priest to be with my people. And if my people are sick, well, then I go to the hospital, you know, you know, after I said my initial yes, you know, of course the, the, the thought comes into mind, I think just as with anybody else, you know, um, am I putting myself at undue risk? Am I, you know, am I going to get sick from this? Um, I talked to my family a little bit about it and I have talked to some friends who also work in the medical world. 
And um, they were both supportive, but also just said, you know, if you're going to do this, make sure that you follow all the rules and make sure that you're doing everything that they tell you to do to make sure that you're um, as safe as you can be. Could you maybe describe for our listeners what uh, anointing of the sick usually looks like in, in quote unquote normal times? Yeah. Um, so in the normal times, basically, you know, it's a very, it's a very personal thing. Um, you know, we lay our hands on, on the person who's requesting the anointing, you know, and then, you know, we anoint their head and their hands with holy oil, um, with our bare hands. Um, my personal style is that when I pray, you know, the, our father with them afterwards, um, I usually invite them to, you know, if they want to hold my hand or if they're with, um, their family or their friends in the hospital setting or not hospital setting, I usually invite you know, the whole family to come together and hold hands together. It's a really tender moment. Um, but, but now it's completely different. I mean, we still do the, we still do the right insofar as, you know, we, we, we don't deviate from it, but just the way it feels is very different. The right meaning the rubrics and the prayers that are sort of set out, right? Exactly. And I would imagine that, um, you know, if you're used to doing this with the, you know, in the, with the support of family members, um, that, doing it in this setting where, you know, you're, you're covered up. Um, you can't really have the, the same physical interactions. I imagine that would be, I don't know, spiritually exhausting or just really difficult. What, what has it felt like for you? On a personal level, um, it's definitely, you know, I, I do anointings all the time, you know, during the normal time. So, uh, there, there's kind of a, a, um, a comfort about it. And I remember the first couple of times I went in to do these COVID anointings, it really hit me like, wow, this is serious. And people are really, really sick. You know, um, I've been, I've been to many ICUs and I play, prayed with many families as they're getting ready to lose their loved one in the ICU, but I've never been to a hospital before where everybody on the floor is so sick. Um, and so number one, that's just drawing to see on a human level. Um, Two, you know, especially, you know, when, when I do anointings again, you know, when someone's in the ICU in, the, in a normal circumstance, usually their family is around them to say goodbye, you know, as they're getting ready to, you know, pass on to the Lord. But um, to realize that, you know, I'll be, I'm the only one praying with them uh, and most likely that they're going to die alone. That's also a very, um, a moment that really hits me. Um, that's very powerful and, and uh, humbling for sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, does it, it, it's, it's, it's spiritually difficult, but I realize how necessary the work is, you know? I'm wondering if you could speak to that necessity a little bit. I, I'm sure there are some people who are confused why this is even remotely on the list of priorities for responding to this crisis. Yeah. I, I mean, the way for us as Catholics, the way that we, you know, express our faith is through the sacraments, right? You know, we learn this in, you know, in our theology courses, right? A sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible grace. And, um, you know, when I go in to do the anointing of the sick, especially for someone who's very active in their faith and practices their faith, you know, or doing it on, on behalf of a family who is very active in their faith, people, people want the sacraments to be part of their life. You know, that's just, that's what we do as Catholics, you know? And so, so the necessity of it is that when someone is, getting ready to, you know, transition from death to new life, the sacraments are still a vital part of that. And, and I think it's absolutely necessary that, a, that we as priests are able to go or a select number of priests are able to go in 
um, to do this necessary thing, you know, because not only are we just anointing them with the sick, you know, there's also cut with the anointing of the sick comes the forgiveness of sins. You know, there's the apostolic pardon, there's the, you know, commendation of the dying. Um, there's all these things that are part of our life of faith. Just because there is this pandemic, people still need that, you know? Yeah. And as important and vital as it is for, for the person being anointed, I imagine it's usually a, a source of comfort for their families as well. I'm wondering how you're ministering uh, to those um, husbands and wives and children and parents who, who can't be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's, it's been secondarily to, to going in to do these anointings. One of the other things that has really struck me and the power of it is those phone calls that I do afterwards. Um, very often, I'm probably the only non-medical person who's allowed to see that person who's dying, right? Um, like I said earlier, in the normal times in an ICU, there'd be, you know, the children, the spouses, you know, their loved ones around them as they're taking their last breaths. And that's not happening right now, you know? And so, so to be able to call, you know, the child or, or the spouse or a loved one of someone who's dying due to COVID-19 and to be able to say like, from a non-medical perspective to say, like, I saw your loved one and I prayed with them and, you know, I was able to give them the last rites, but also be able to say to them that they look okay or they don't look like they're in pain or they look, you know, or they look comfortable. You can really just tell, at least in my, in my experience, People have gotten such great comfort with that, and to be able to pray with them on the pray, be able to pray with them on the phone afterwards, and just to reassure them that you know that that they're being looked after and that they're being cared for. You know, yeah, I can only imagine how comforting that is. Um, I'm wondering what your uh, insight into some of the other people on the front lines, uh, the medical professionals. How are how are they doing from from your perspective and interaction with them? Very often when I go into the hospitals, um, and again, I don't go to one particular hospital. I'm going to, you know, I've been to probably like six or seven different hospitals at this point. Very often I always invariably ask, how are you? Um, and you can, and the answer has always been, you know, oh, we're making it, you know, we're making through it, Father, or, you know, we're tired, but we're doing the best we can. Um, there's a different, there's a different feeling on the floors now than there was before. You know, everyone seems to be on edge and everyone's, a little bit more tired, but everyone does seem to have more of a have more of a resolve. Like you know, we're all in this together. I have this vivid memory. Um, this just happened probably about a week ago, and I was uh, walking out of the closest hospital to me actually, and I happened I didn't I didn't know how to get out of the hospital, so I asked. I ran into a nurse and I asked her, you know, can you help me show? Can you show me the exit? And she's like, Oh, I'm actually headed that way now. I'm done with my shift. So we're both walking to the parking garage and it was a bit of a walk. And so we had a chance to kind of connect. And I remember I asked her, I said, you know, how you doing? She says, you know, I got into nursing when I was 21, 22, and then did that for a couple of years and then took a break uh, to go do um, some work in, in another field. And then um, I saw what was happening with COVID and I renewed my, my nursing license and I got back in. And so this is probably my third or fourth shift in the hospital after renewing my license so that I could you know, uh, just give back and to help, help other people, uh, in the hospital. And she said, like, you know, she said this time now is completely different from when it was, when I was doing this a couple years ago. And she says, even in this, in my short shift of seven, eight hours, you know, 
five people have already died. She she told me just how 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 profound that was and how how shocking that was. Um, and again, she had only been on the job, you know, back into nursing for you know a couple of weeks, but uh, but she looked but she looked tired, you know, because that's just that's emotionally draining, you know, seeing seeing someone pass away. That's even the most experienced person that it's part of human nature to to have feelings and emotions around it. Yeah. Having seen um, all of this suffering up close, having seen the dedication of of the nurses and doctors and other medical staff, I'm wondering how you see kind of the broader um, conversations we're having about, uh, you know, whether it's time to reopen, whether the hit to the economy is is worth it, um, and those sort of things. You know, people protesting the the stay at home orders. Uh, what what's your perspective on that? Yeah, no, I get it. You know, and I, you know, on a, on a very practical level, I can see both sides of it. You know, I can, I see the, I see the necessity to stay home, you know, but I also see even in my own parish, you know, parishioners are starting to lose their jobs. And, you know, as this goes longer, more and more people are being affected. So I see, I certainly see both sides of it, but, you know, I think about, I think about it just from my own personal experience uh, of seeing the hospitals and seeing people, you know, on ventilators and seeing entire wards so sick life is so precious and and yes our economy is taking a big hit to this whole thing but you know is that is that so much so to the point where 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 we'll say well we'll just let some people die you know um and if there's a possibility to stay home to to try to mitigate that as much as possible then like why not you know i get it um if if maybe COVID hasn't affected some communities versus others. I can see, you know, leaning one way or another, but, you know, just from my own experience, you know, if, if, if I was told that I have to, you know, stand on one leg for two weeks for COVID to go away, I'll stand on my on one leg for two weeks for COVID to go away, you know, just because my experiences firsthand, I've just, I've seen the reality of it and how, and how difficult it is. You know, I have, you know, I have, I have personally, I have my own family member uh, who, got COVID. And so she's a medical professional herself, you know, and so she's been having to, you know, stay at home and recover for the past three weeks because it's affected her, you know? So, you know, why, why wouldn't I want to do my part uh, by staying home? Mm. Sorry to hear that about your family member. I hope she's doing okay or better at least. Yeah. She's, yeah, she's doing a lot better. You know? Um, yeah. She's, she's doing, she's doing really, really good now. Good. One thing I do wonder about, um, I know a lot of the conversation has centered on, you know, uh, you know, lay Catholics really missing having access to the sacraments um, and and the burden of that. But hearing your experience, it's clear that that priests are are sharing sharing the burden of this epidemic. So I'm wondering, I don't know, <laughs> what can <laughs> what can parishioners do to to support their priests, whether they're you know. All, on the front lines like you um, anointing the sick or just, you know, trying to adapt to these really difficult times? Honestly, one of the things that I've really uh, gotten great comfort from are the, uh, you know, are the emails and the phone calls and uh, just the way that, the ways that we've been able to connect to one another. Because, because think about it this way, you know, I, I, I've been a priest for four years now and I'm so used to just seeing people right? You know, very much what I do as a priest is, is this face-to-face connecting thing. And what I've really appreciated just personally, um, when my parishioners or 
other people have called to check in on me like, Hey, how are you, father? You good? Um, you know, uh, even just like I did, uh, I did a happy hour with, uh, some of my, uh, the teachers at my school, you know, just like, just a way for us to be able to connect, you know, um, it's those small moments that, that remind me that, you know, I'm not in this alone, but you know, I'm doing this for my people, you know? And so being able to connect with my people, even virtually, um, that, that really means a lot. Father Michael, uh, thank you. Thank you for your vocation, um, for your willingness to, to be with your people. Um, know that we'll be praying for you and the, the rest of the priests that are on this task force. Uh, we have one question, one final question for you. We ask all our guests this. Uh, if you could canonize one person, uh, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or non-fictional, uh, who would it be and why? So um, the person I would get canonized would be um, Servant of God, Augustus Tolton. Uh, you know, he's he's not a fictional, fictional person. He's very real. <laughs> uh, he's, very much in the, he's very much in the process to be, be uh, canonized. Um, but... I just think he has a great story. Can you give us a, a quick bio for those two? For sure, yeah. yeah. So Father Augustus Tolton was, is the uh, first Black priest to be ordained in the United States. Um, and it just also helps that he was a Chicago priest, so there's a connection there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but so he was born into slavery uh, in the early 1800s, and then he, uh, you know, left left slavery with his mother and they came to Illinois and then he had a vocation of the priesthood and, um, and trying to get into seminary was very difficult. And he ended up going to Rome, uh, for a seminary with the Franciscans. And, um, there's a, a line that I really like. It was, he was getting ready for his ordination to the priesthood and he was, his thought was, and the, the thought of everybody was that he was going to go to Africa and be a missionary in Africa. And some influential Cardinal says to, uh, Augustus Tolton, he says, well, if America claims to be this enlightened nation, I think they're ready for a black priest. And so then, uh, they send him to the United States and he ends up in Chicago. And I just think, I just, I really appreciate his resilience, uh, in the face of, uh, adversity. But I also think it's, it's really cool to see, uh, uh, a saint look like me, right. You know, cause I'm the 14th black priest to be ordained in Chicago. And he was the first. And so to know that there's that connection there and there's, um, there's, uh, a history there, you know, I think, I think that's really incredible. So he's definitely on my, my, my first, my prayer list to get canonized. Amen. Right. St. Augustus Tolton. Yeah. Pray for us. <laughs> awesome. Michael, thank you so much. And when this is all over, where can people, uh, come find you in Chicago? Sure. Yeah. I'm the associate pastor of Our Lady of Mount Carmel Parish in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago. For those of you who've been in Chicago, I'm sure many of you have been to Wrigley Field where the Chicago Cubs play. They're in my parish boundaries. I'm eight blocks south of them. So <laughs> you go to a game and you come to, come to my math afterwards. <laughs> are you originally a North Sider or are you a South Sider? I'm actually a Detroiter originally, but I've been okay. in Chicago for 13 years. And uh, yeah, this Chicago's home, but I've been on the North Side for all my years as a priest. So you're, so you're okay being that close to the Cubs? I very much so. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, Father Michael. You're welcome. Thanks. And thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for uh, bringing the the news out to to the Catholic people. And uh, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Father Michael.
All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. Uh, first, we want to say thank you to our new members of the Patreon community, Peter W. and Kathleen DeCunto. Um, thank you so much for your support. Uh, and to all of our Patreon supporters, we we couldn't do the work uh, we love to do and that we want to continue doing without your support. Um, so if you'd like to become a Patreon member, you can go to patreon.com slash America Media. Yeah, and if you're looking for some... Uh Extra extra things to watch if you're if you're needing a little more Ashley McKinless in your life. <laughs> Ashley, you were participating in a in a Zoom sort of webinar this this past week, right? That is correct. Uh, the Georgetown University Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life had a Zoom meeting on on Monday, which they were nice enough to invite me to take part in. It's called their Salt and Light Gathering, which focuses on young Catholics, and so I was part of a great panel um, on moving beyond a life on hold young Catholics in the time of crisis. So we will put a link to that YouTube video in our show notes. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? This week I've got a desolation. Uh, So my mother and my cousin, who are both healthcare professionals, uh, this week arrived in New York um, to sort of fill in some staffing shortages at uh, dialysis clinics here in the city. And there's one part of me that's so proud and so honored to to love them and know them and um, that they are sort of leaving a place that is not hit as hard by the coronavirus pandemic and are trying to help and serve is very moving, but I don't know this past week. It's, it's just brought a lot of fear. Um, this is probably the most I have been personally like affected by it. Um, I'm, I'm just afraid for my mom, for, for my cousin, for all the people that they're interacting with. And a lot of that fear is sort of getting in the way. I think of what I, I, whatever God's, response for me to this is and i'm not sure what that is but all i can do is dwell on the fear this week and so that's been a great desolation even in the midst of being super grateful for the both of them yeah wow i didn't i didn't realize they had arrived that i mean i can imagine being scared for them but um yeah also very proud that's really admirable um i'm sure it's hard you you probably can't give your mom a hug and tell her how proud you are right now. One of the worst parts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I I saw her a little bit when she got here, but you know, Mm. needing to stay six feet apart and not being able to, to hug your mom just sucks. Yeah, no, that's really hard. Uh, well, I will keep your mom and your cousin in my prayers, um, and hope they stay safe as they do this really, um, heroic work. Yeah. What do you got this week, Ashley? Um, I also have a desolation, um, kind of my, the attitude I've tried to cultivate since, um, coming back to my parents' house is like this idea that I, I can't complain. Like I really can't complain. I am in such a privileged position. Um, you know, I'm still employed. I have food to eat. I have a nice place to live. Um, and so what that's kind of translated to in my emotional and spiritual life is like anytime there's like a a feeling of sadness or self-pity or or loneliness or anything I just feel like I have to like 
shut that down and like don't don't let that rise to the surface um because i need to just focus on how lucky i am and how grateful i should be and it's that's just that's you know not what ignatian spirituality tells us to do it tells us you know to you know you know look at our emotions um uh and take that to prayer and let that you know guide your conversation with god and i i feel like i have i haven't even started that conversation because i've just like felt ashamed that i am not more <laughs> grateful um for all that i do have so i'm unwilling to you know to bring my sadness and anger and impatience with my family to god in prayer um and <laughs> you can only do that for so long before um you know it kind of like bubbles up and maybe you snap at your mother or just like um aren't aren't yes hypothetically (laughs) slam the door and go on a two-hour walk (laughs) like um yeah so i you know it's something that i'm aware of um and aware that i need to take a you know be a little more gentle on myself because you know i am in a good situation but all of us are experiencing um uh this national crisis in our own ways and it doesn't make them less valid. Um, so let's kind of just, I'm not there yet. I know where I need to go, but I'm still kind of in not a, not a great place in terms of being honest about my emotions and bringing those to God. Mm, it's hard. Sometimes the hardest thing, be gentle with yourself. Yep. Good advice to all of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Get us out of here. Okay. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Thank you to David J.B. who left us a review this week. Jesuitical is a production of America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.